Israel's retaliation against Hamas militants in Gaza has left the Gaza Strip without electricity, and a humanitarian crisis is unfolding there now. At least 1,000 people have died. Meanwhile, the Hamas attack on Israel has killed at least 1,200 people. It's Wednesday, October 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up with the latest. Also, the residents of one rural, mostly black county in Alabama have to reckon with sewage backing up in their homes. We just want to solve this because every homeowner deserves the right to have clean water and sanitation. A new landmark environmental justice agreement is aimed at fixing this long-standing problem. And more than half dog owners in the U.S. question the safety, efficacy, and usefulness of the rabies shots for their pet. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. It's day five of air sirens, Hamas rocket fire on Israel and Israeli airstrikes on Gaza, sending the death toll on both sides of the border surging. More than 2,000 civilian deaths spanning both sides so far. Thousands more children, women and men injured. And the devastations coming into clear focus today since Hamas militants unleashed a campaign of mass executions of Israeli civilians Saturday. NPR's Daniel Estrin seeing evidence of bloodshed in the Israeli city of Seirot, where he says the police headquarters there is now gone. This is the scene of a disaster zone, a 24-hour firefight, when Gaza militants came in, took over this police station, killed the Israeli police officers inside, Israeli police then came, surrounded it, and there was a 24-hour firefight here. We spoke to one Israeli resident who said the firefight was incredible, but then the sight of an Israeli tank coming through his streets, he never imagined in his wildest dreams he would see it came in order to completely eviscerate the police station with all of the militants inside. That's Daniel Estrin reporting. Israel has declared a full siege against Palestinian Hamas militants in Gaza, where a humanitarian crisis affecting more than 2 million residents is growing. From Tel Aviv, NPR's Aya Bathrawi spoke to NPR's Here and Now about what the siege means for Palestinian civilians. And that means no fuel, no food, no water, no medicine, no electricity entering Gaza. And that is why the main power plant shut down today. And that means hospitals who are treating over 5,000 wounded people. 5,000 treated since Saturday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's on his way to Israel. Show of solidarity with the U.S. ally. He says one of the issues that will be raised is securing the release of Americans who are among the more than 100 people Hamas took hostage. 22 American lives have been lost, and roughly as many Americans are still unaccounted for since the war began. In other news, House Republicans have nominated Majority Leader Steve Scalise to serve as Speaker of the House, narrowly beating out House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh reports Scalise won the internal GOP vote, but it's unclear if he has the votes to be elected by the full House. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise says his first priority will be to pass a resolution supporting Israel following the brutal attack by Hamas. We have a lot of work to do, uh, not just in the House for the people of this country, but we see how dangerous of a world it is and how things can change so quickly. But in order to get the gavel, Scalise will need 217 votes in the full House. Jordan offered to nominate Scalise on the House floor, but some of his supporters say they aren't prepared to vote for Scalise. Others who back Jordan say it's time for the party to unite and have a functioning house. That's Deirdre Walsh. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Palestine Film Festival is postponing its live events that were set to start Friday. The organization says it did so in part because of safety concerns caused by tensions over the fighting between Israel and Hamas. The festival's director of programming, Michael Maria, says the live events would have provided a valuable space for members of the Boston Palestinian community to support each other. It's a part of what made this such a difficult decision, but at the same time, it also felt very wrong for us to come together, sit in a movie theater in the safety and comfort of a, of a Boston venue while our relatives in Palestine are at risk every minute. Maria says he hopes the festival will return next year. The festival's planned virtual components will go on as scheduled. Attorneys who represent more than 50 women have filed a class action lawsuit against a former Brigham and Women's Hospital rheumatologist. Dr. Derek Todd is accused of performing medically unnecessary pelvic and breast exams. Several medical facilities associated with Todd are also named in the suit as our high-ranking administrators. Todd agreed to stop practicing as a doctor in July. His lawyer has denied the doctor did anything wrong. Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says while the U.S. House elects a new speaker, the Senate is equally inert. Auchincloss faults several Republican senators for holding up dozens of nominations. That includes a number of diplomatic and military posts abroad. It's unacceptable. They need to act. We need uh, fully confirmed officials in their positions. Just this morning, I got a briefing from three different acting officials across the state and Pentagon. That is not the posture of readiness that the United States needs at a time of increasing uncertainty and danger. On the House Speakership, Auchincloss says Democrats are united behind Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Auchincloss spoke today on WBOR's Radio Boston. Massachusetts is investing millions of dollars in hydropower. The money is part of some $40 million announced by the federal government today to support green energy projects nationwide. Some of that money will go to facilities in Stockbridge and Weston, Mass. The money comes from the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed in 2021. 68 degrees now in the Boston area should have partly cloudy skies into the nighttime, about 50 for a low. Sunshine tomorrow, a lovely October day, highs in the mid-60s. Sun could return for Friday. This is WBUR. It's 407. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today is the fifth day of war between the Palestinian militant group Hamas and Israel. More than a thousand people have died on each side. Palestinian officials say thousands more have been wounded in Gaza and a quarter million people have been displaced. And Gaza is where we are going to start this hour. Gaza is now cut off from the the outside world. There is a full-scale drop down in the telecommunications system. Hisham Mahana is a communication officer at the International Committee of the Red Cross. We reached him today in Gaza before its main power plant shut down. He says that could throw hospitals into crisis. We fear that hospitals may turn into graveyards if they uh, are not fed with electricity. They are now running either on generators or solar systems, which are not enough to maintain them operational. 
As Israel blocks fuel, food, and water from entering Gaza, the airstrikes continue. Israel says it has hit 2,500 targets in the Gaza Strip. Last night was one of the deadliest and most horrible nights I have ever witnessed. Many of my friends and colleagues have uh, lost one uh, of their beloved ones. That is Khada El-Haddad, media and communications officer for Oxfam, speaking to us today from Gaza. Every night, she and her parents, brothers, sisters-in-law, nieces and nephews take shelter in her ground floor apartment. We try to calm the children down by telling them stories and telling them that these bombardments are only fireworks, but uh, children or all like my family children started to um, realize that we are lying to them and these are not sounds of fireworks. About half of Gaza's more than two million residents are children under 15. Al-Haddad says she is not certain what's to come with more airstrikes and a possible ground invasion ahead. I cannot imagine what will happen in the following few hours. Am I going to be dead or alive? I really don't know, but I know for sure that I'm afraid. It's night right now, it's dark, and you feel like also helpless. You cannot do anything. You just like wait for the day to come to see what happened in the night. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are now sheltering in schools run by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA. We reached their director of communications today in Athens, Juliet Tuma, and I asked her how well she's been able to keep in touch with her colleagues in Gaza. We are in a constant uh, touch with our colleagues on the ground. UNRWA has 13,000 staff members who work with the agency on the ground. Um, many of them um, are still on the front lines working. However, today is a very sad day for UNRWA and the rest of the United Nations because we can confirm that 11 of our staff have been killed uh, since the 7th of yes. October. So it's a very sad day for all of us. I'm so, so sorry. What more can you Thank tell you. us about those individuals? Five of them were teachers. One was uh, a gynecologist. One is an engineer and others were support staff. Um, they were killed, many of them, while at home with their families due to the airstrikes and mm. the bombardments. And what are you hearing now about how the rest of your colleagues in Gaza are trying to stay safe. How are they doing so right now? Do you know? People are terrified, Elsa. They're really terrified. I mean, we get all these um, these messages. Um, luckily, there is a little bit of internet in the Gaza Strip. So uh, one staff member said to me, I think this is going to be the end for me and my family. One staff member said, we'll be in touch tomorrow if I'm still alive. And for many, many of them, um, this is like the seventh time that they go through an escalation in, in violence and a conflict. But they say to us that this is unprecedented. I understand that now that more than 200,000 people who've been displaced are now sheltering in something like 88 UNRWA schools across the Gaza Strip. Can you just tell us about the conditions at those schools right now and what supplies you need most? So these are schools that normally would give education to about 300,000 kids in the Gaza Strip. Now, we had to close our schools and turn them into shelters because since uh, the 7th of October, just on Saturday, we've had people flocking into our schools to take shelter and mm -hmm. the numbers continue to increase as we speak. We've run out right now of 
um, basic supplies, including things like matrices and cleaning material and hygiene kits. Uh, we've been giving people water and, and bread, but we're running very, very fast of, of our supplies. Um, and then not all of these schools are safe, uh, very sadly. Uh, at least two of uh, these schools sheltering the displaced have been hit by airstrikes. Right. Um, fortunately, we did not have any casualties uh, during the time. Well, given that two of your schools have already been hit, how much of a concern is there that the remaining schools will also be hit while you're using them as shelters? It's a reminder that schools are a place of sanctuary. Schools should be protected at all times. Now, in these cases, this is a school that is also a UN school, so it's doubly protected. It should never have been hit. It's a violation of law. It's a violation of of all war laws. Meanwhile, Israel has announced that it has amassed troops in preparation for an expected ground invasion of Gaza. How is your team preparing for that? Well, first of all, the UN is calling for all fighting everywhere to come to an end. Um, And we're fearing the worst in terms of the coming few days. It is very hard for us, of course, to predict what's going to happen. And with the tightening of the blockade and without our ability to get in uh, basic supplies and humanitarian assistance, we're going to be in a very, very difficult situation. Juliet Tuma, Director of Communications for UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ansel. Many people treat their pet dogs like family and raise them in accordance with their own values. A recent paper finds that human vaccine skepticism is making its way into the pet world. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Cindy Marabito runs a pit bull rescue out of her home in Austin, Texas. We're the only raw feeding, holistic, completely no-kill, 100% pit bull refuge and rescue in the United States. Right now, she has nine dogs roaming her big backyard near the banks of the Colorado River. Her philosophy is to give low to no vaccines. Why are we giving all these dogs, horses, kittens, cats, excessive rabies shots? Health officials say those shots help keep a deadly disease away. In most states, dogs are required to get rabies shots every three years. But Marabito is one of many pet owners with canine vaccine hesitancy. According to a recent survey out of Boston University, 53% of U.S. dog owners question if the rabies vaccine is safe, if it works, or if it's useful. Lori Teller is a veterinarian at Texas A&M and former head of the American Veterinary Medical Association. I find it very disturbing. Uh, The rabies vaccine has been around for decades, and it is so incredibly safe, especially when you consider the risk of death. Teller says skepticism towards human vaccines has risen with the politics around COVID and the anti-vaccine movement against childhood shots. And I am extremely concerned um, that, that we're getting spillover into the veterinary space, particularly because a lot of these vaccines do prevent diseases that are potentially contagious to humans. The disease most worrying for human health is rabies. 
Ryan Wallace, head of the rabies team at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, explains the infection. It's usually almost always transmitted uh, from saliva of an infected animal. The virus gets into the body through a bite wound. It travels slowly up the nerves to the brain, and then it starts replicating rapidly. That's when an animal or a human starts showing signs. It's almost impossible to come back after that. The virus, its goal is to make you act abnormal so it can spread to the next animal. Wallace says 99.9% of humans and animals that get rabies to the brain will die. A hundred years ago, rabies was considered one of the most important public health problems in the U.S. Now, it's largely under control. We have shifted as a country from vaccinating dogs at a high rate to get rid of the virus to now vaccinating our pets at a high rate to keep the, keep the wildlife versions of this virus from getting into our pets and people. About 5,000 rabid animals get reported each year, mostly bats, raccoons, skunks, and other wildlife. Cindy Marabito from the Pitbull Rescue says she's never seen a rabid animal. You know, I'm not careless, but I also really don't overly concern myself with being fearful of things that rarely, rarely, rarely happen. But she says she has seen a dog act strangely after getting a rabies shot. Serious side effects from the rabies vaccine are very, very rare, but seeing that made her wary. Researchers say that while half of dog owners are skeptical of the rabies vaccine, most are still giving it to their pets. The vaccination rate is around 80 percent, about the same as it was 10 years ago. Still, health officials say the margin is slim. If that 80 percent rate drops to below 70 percent, pockets of the country could start seeing more deadly rabies in people and pets. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes here on All Things Considered. The Washington Post plans to cut 10 percent of its staff through voluntary buyouts. Leaders say the company made mistakes as it projected growth in readership, subscriptions and ads. That story and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums with the new exhibition, Objects of Addiction, Opium, Empire, and the Chinese Art Trade. Now on view, harvardartmuseums.org. And Stepping Stone, for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at steppingstone.org. An update on the street. The Dow gained about two-tenths of a percent, S&P rose four-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained just over seven-tenths of a percent. A housing advocacy group on Cape Cod is buying a 128-bed nursing home in Dennis. It plans to convert the property in the future to a family shelter. Housing Assistance says the owner of the nursing home approached the group earlier this year. Housing Assistance says for now, the nursing home operator will continue to lease the facility to give it time for its residents to be relocated. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Join a vibrant academic community. Enjoy in-person, peer-led courses on their Cambridge campus. 
speaker events, special interest groups, and more. Apply by October 25th to start in February. To learn more, visit their website, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Some sunshine, some clouds around. Should have partly cloudy skies into the nighttime, about 50 for a low. Sunshine tomorrow should be a beautiful day with highs in the mid-60s. 68 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Dollar General, with its big yellow sign, has 19,000 stores nationwide, more than any other retailer. 80% of those are in small towns. And now Dollar General is pairing up with a mobile clinic operator for an experiment to bring health care to rural residents. Reporter Sarah Jane Tribble traveled to Tennessee and discovered that winning patients isn't as simple as just setting up shop in a parking lot. The mobile clinic looks like a cross between a small RV and a food truck. One side is covered with a bright blue and yellow poster, vaccinations, physicals, prescriptions. When registered nurse Kimberly French arrives for her shift, she snaps a cord on an exam chair back into place. We talk over the hum of the air conditioning. A lot of it's already set up. Um, I come in and, and um, just make sure everything, everything that's lost its way on the trip is back where it goes. The van has been trying out different Dollar General locations since late last year and trying to win people over. French uses an iPad to connect patients with a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. She can also do labs, give shots, and just be with the patient. That is, when there are patients. We don't have any appointments so far today, but that could change. (laughs) Last night, we didn't have any appointments, and three or four people showed up all at one time, so. The clinic is owned and operated by mobile health provider DocGo, as in doctor on the go. The company is based in New York. Business boomed for DocGo during the COVID-19 pandemic. But in recent weeks, the company has faced scrutiny for how they are delivering care in New York and their use of public funds there. Meanwhile, here in Tennessee, with its partner Dollar General, the company is trying to figure out health care in rural America. Bubba Murphy was walking into a Dollar General when I stopped him to ask about the mobile clinic. Oh, I like it because we don't have to go to town and fight all that traffic. Dollar General says its partnership with DocGo complements the retailer's effort to increase access to healthy products like vitamins and supplements, particularly in rural America. The whole idea, they said, is to test and learn. 72-year-old Lulu West moved to Tennessee years ago and already has a primary care doctor she trusts. When you say mobile clinic outside of Dollar General, it just kind of has a connotation that you may not really be comfortable with. You know what I mean? A little doctor by the grocery store, you know, I don't know. Outside another Dollar General location not far away, I met business owner Nicole Clemmer. She's not impressed. It's just a... Another way for them to make money, because I'm thinking, what the hell do they have to do with health? But it could be beneficial. Now, if it was free, then yes. Then I'd be like, all for it, if it was free. It's not free. DotGo and Dollar General are both for-profit companies. 
DocGo takes private and public insurance, and there's a self-pay option, too, though the company declined to provide exactly what that cost is. Tom Campanilla is a longtime healthcare executive and understands the business of running mobile clinics. Having a healthcare van sitting outside a Dollar General could mean more traffic for the store and help people. They have a tremendous opportunity, given their existing footprint, to have a major impact on health there. There is rural America. Health industry watchers say providing care at thousands of Dollar General locations could be a game changer for areas that don't have enough doctors. Primary care physician Carlo Pike is always busy. He's been around for decades in northern Tennessee. He says developing a relationship takes time and ongoing attention. If I can do this relationship right, maybe we can keep you from getting a sugar of 500 or from, you know, grandpa climbing up a ladder and trying to fix something he has no business with and falling off and breaking his leg. To introduce the mobile clinic, the .go van goes to community gatherings and gives out swag. But it didn't work in Cumberland Furnace, the most rural location they tried. Lottie Stokes is president of the community center there. They have called and asked for it to come down here, and I would never answer them back. Stokes sees no need for the mobile clinic. She'd rather just call the local EMTs and fire department. Yeah, I know them guys. I know they're, they're, they're legit. It's, you're looking at somebody that I don't know that well that's calling me to ask for permission to come down here and set up for our events that I don't know when I have somebody that's local that I know. Stokes may not think there's a need for the clinic, but after we stopped talking, her father-in-law, Bobby Stokes, quietly called me over. He's nearly 80 and said he and his wife went to the mobile van one night. She couldn't breathe. They pulled into the parking lot and climbed on. We wasn't in there five minutes. They'd done the blood pressure test and the, what they need to do and put her in the car and get her to the hospital, to the emergency room. I asked if DocGo wanted payment. Did he give them money? I don't guess they did because I didn't give them none. What about your insurance card? Didn't even give them that. Nothing at all? Nothing. They were more concerned with her than they were with, I guess, with getting the money. Stokes says his wife would not have made it through the night. They told me to get there. And I took them at the word. My car runs fast. <laughs> he and his wife got the care they needed. The question remains, though, of whether this particular marriage of health care and retail could help enough patients in rural America. I'm Sarah Jane Tribble in Tennessee. This story was produced in collaboration with KFF Health News. Birkenstock has clogged its way to becoming a publicly traded company valued at about $8 billion. It kicked up quite the stir on Wall Street, as NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. Stock traders don't really get to do this, but today... Everyone here on the floor, myself included, is wearing Birkenstocks. That's Trinity Chavez, an anchor for the live feed from the New York Stock Exchange. Were there executives in suits wearing Birkenstocks? Yes, there were. Open toes? Yes, indeed. Burks over socks also present. As the CEO rang the opening bell, his entourage waved shoes in the air. One man clapped his hands with one hand wearing a sandal. Birkenstock is nearly 250 years old, older even than the Stock Exchange, run by a German family for seven generations. Their innovation was the anatomically shaped insole made of cork and latex. It's not high fashion, but it persists, from hippies to hipsters to even Barbie in this year's blockbuster. The first one, the high heel. No, we'll do a redo. 
CEO Oliver Reichert told CNBC it's all about word of mouth. Just go into your private environment and ask, do you have a pair of Birkenstock? Uh, yes. How many pairs? 10 pairs, 12 pairs, you I know? Too. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a rookie. You know? Unlike the CNBC reporter, an average American fan apparently owns 3.6 pairs of Birkenstocks. In its filing to go public, the company described itself as, quote, the oldest startup on earth serving a primal need of all human beings. What does it sell? Not shoes, but, quote, the experience of walking as intended by nature. Birkenstock is always the, the second best option. Right after walking barefoot on soft ground. Reichert has run the company for a decade since the Birkenstock family stepped back, later selling the majority stake. Why is he taking the company public now? Maybe because the markets are ready, or maybe, as he wrote to investors, quote, everything has to change so that everything stays the way it is. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. And a note, despite the enthusiasm, Birkenstock shares finish the first day down more than 12%. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, as all things considered, Israeli civilians are living under the protection of the country's advanced missile defense system known as the Iron Dome. But how does it work? That story coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered. Also coming up, a Palestinian man living in Massachusetts is hoping for word from his parents and siblings who live in Gaza. Our conversation with him in the next hour. So please keep listening. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Scott Tong. Our look at the history of guns in America continues. We explore the link between gun culture and the slave trade. Slavery was a fact in every single colony, and of course it was concentrated in the southern colonies. And slavery doesn't work without a weapons gap. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu again today as the administration pursues more aid for its ally and warns that the number of American deaths in what has become a war between Israel and Hamas could go up. White House National Security spokesman John Kirby told reporters that the parameters for an additional funding request to Congress have yet to be finalized, but says Washington can continue to support both Israel and Ukraine. We are in active conversations with members of Congress about additional funding for Ukraine and for Israel. Um, and it's critical, again, that we believe Congress sends a, a clear message to Putin, sends a clear message to the Israeli people uh, that, uh, that the United States continues to have their back. President Biden pledged to support Israel after Saturday's surprise attack by the Palestinian militant group Hamas. Meanwhile, France is chartering a plane to bring its citizens from Israel 
back home. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley tells us, France has the largest Jewish population after the U.S. and Israel. La mise en place. French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna announced a special flight chartered by Air France to bring French citizens who desired out of Israel. The French Parliament also held a minute of silence for victims of the Hamas terrorist attack. France also has Europe's largest Muslim population, and there are fears the crisis could spill over here. French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin said the government is closely tracking any anti-Semitic speech on social media. He said several sites had been signaled and some people have been apprehended. Eleanor Beersley, NPR News, Paris. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street this afternoon following the latest report on wholesale inflation that came in a bit hotter than expected. The Dow still rose 65 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Commuter rail service will return to the city of Lynn a little more than a year after the station was shut down due to safety concerns. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports a temporary platform is being installed and service is expected to resume before the end of the year. State transportation leaders gathered with lawmakers and Lynn city officials at 11 Ellis Street, the site of the temporary commuter rail platform. The interim station is three blocks away from the original station, which was closed last October. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang says he was told when he started earlier this year that the temporary platform wouldn't be ready until 2024. I went back to the team and I basically challenged them that there's different ways of doing this, that we can be creative and innovative in terms of delivering uh, temporary service. Ang says the platform will open in December, nine months earlier than previously scheduled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Service resumed today on the MBTA's green line between Leachmere and Union Square. It had been shut down for the past three weeks for repairs. The MBTA also announced today that all speed restrictions on the green line extension have been lifted. The governor's office is releasing a readiness plan to help protect Massachusetts communities from extreme weather events. It's called Resilient Mass. And the plan includes 142 actions state agencies can take to help the state adapt to climate change. It would establish an Office of Climate Science, make the state building code more resilient, and update MBTA design standards. The state identifies flooding, high heat, and erosion caused by sea level rise as the biggest climate-related risks. This is WBUR. The forecast is on the way. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at SunbugSolar.com. Good cheer of clouds around through the night tonight. The off chance of a shower falling to 50. Then for tomorrow, sunny skies for the day. Highs close to 70. 68 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth, 
and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. A landmark environmental justice agreement is aimed at fixing longstanding sanitation issues in a rural, predominantly black Alabama county. Residents say help has been slow to come, but they hope new federal pressure will change the dynamic. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. As Ruby Rudolph walks around to the back of her brick ranch house in Whitehall, Alabama, there's a noticeable stench. You smell that? Did you smell that? That came from over there. There's mine's right there. I don't even come back here no more. Her septic system is failing, so when it rains, raw sewage backs up into her bathroom. And the bathtub is there in the first place to show up. Here on Gardenia Street, most of the neighbors have on-site septic tanks for sewage disposal. They're common in the countryside where there might not be enough customers for a municipal sewage treatment plant to be feasible. But the septic tanks here are failing. Some are old and others are sinking or have completely collapsed. Rudolph says she's tried getting the tank pumped out and the pipes repaired, but sewage still backs up. And can you imagine going in your bathroom to take a bath and your water is not going out of your sink or out of your bathtub and it's backed up with um, waste out of our body and it's terrible. Lowndes County is in the heart of what's known as the Black Belt, a rural agricultural region in West Alabama named for its rich black soil and known for its largely black population. It was called Bloody Lowndes because of racial violence during Jim Crow and was at the center of the 1960s voting rights movement. Marchers between Selma and Montgomery would camp overnight in tent cities here. Now, Lowndes County is at the forefront of an environmental justice case that could establish sanitation access as a civil right. Ruby Rudolph, who's 75, says it's about time. Sanitation should be a right no matter what. The U.S. Justice Department intervened after several groups filed a complaint under the Civil Rights Act alleging racial discrimination in the way the state funds wastewater infrastructure. The Environmental Protection Agency has also opened a civil rights probe. Lowndes County native and community organizer Stephanie Wallace says in Alabama, poor black people are the last to get help. If you go around to these different predominantly black communities, you see the same problems. Raw sewage on the ground, no access to funding to fix the problem. She's come to Gladys Mall's home in the unincorporated Hicks Hill community. Mall says the land has been in her family for generations. I've been in this trailer 30 years. My great-grandmother house was actually built here. That house originally had a septic system but it's crumbling and doesn't work. So Mall is doing what's known as straight piping. A long white PVC tube runs along the ground from her trailer, emptying waste into a pasture out back. If I use the bathroom, it's gonna come up right there, but that's where it goes out right there. Mall says she can't afford a new system, which would cost around $10,000. Looking up and down her road, she counts seven neighbors in the same plight. Before it was like a hush-hush thing because nobody talked about it, because everybody was scared of being fined and going to jail for it. 
because the law is you have to have a separate system. But now an interim agreement between the Justice Department and the Alabama Department of Public Health prevents the state from punishing people who are not in compliance. We are taking action to find out what the problem is, where the problems are, and how we can connect people with resources to repair their systems. Dr. Karen Landers is the chief medical officer with the Alabama Department of Public Health. She says having the federal government involved opens up resources under the American Rescue Plan Act. But she rejects any implication that the state was discriminating against poor black residents. There was no finding against the Alabama Department of Public Health as doing anything wrong or taking any action against people that was discriminatory in any way. This was a voluntary agreement between the department and the DOJ. Landers says the state is currently developing a survey to reach Lowndes County's roughly 10,000 residents. Environmental activists are hopeful the agreement can serve as a national model for sanitation equity. I think Lowndes County was just the canary in the coal mine. Catherine Coleman-Flowers is the founding director of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, one of the groups that filed the civil rights complaint against Alabama. She grew up in Lowndes County and has been pushing for better infrastructure for decades. Flowers wrote the book Waste, One Woman's Fight Against America's Dirty Little Secret. It's more than systemic racism. I think that it is actually systemic discrimination against rural communities that's underlining it. I think that rural communities across the U.S. are suffering from the same problem. People just didn't talk about it. Flowers says climate change is bringing it to the forefront with rising water tables and intense storms that push more water through sewage systems. She advocates for a national policy that would put more pressure on manufacturers to offer warranties and adapt systems that would work for specific regions. We just want to solve this because this could be a public health problem for us throughout the U.S. if we don't solve this problem. And every homeowner deserves the right to have clean water and sanitation. For Whitehall Mayor Delmartre Bethel, the lack of sewage infrastructure is an economic development issue for his small town. A public sewer system is attractive. If we have something for them to hook up to and be able to offer them, like I said, it, it would attract more people in. But right now, we don't have it. He says it's a catch-22. With little more than a dollar store to generate tax revenue, he doesn't have the resources to build a public sewer plant that residents could afford. Bethel, who is 30 and serving his first term as mayor, says he's been surprised and disheartened by some of the debate around solving the raw sewage problem. Comments like, people need to get a better job or find a different place to live. He thinks those sentiments are rooted in the past. Whitehall is known for playing a pivotal part in the actual voting rights movement. And so when Lowndes County want help, it's a lot of pushback because of that movement. An attitude of you got the political power you wanted, now solve your own problems. But he's optimistic that having the Justice Department involved can help, and he's working now to urge people to be patient and trust the process. That's going to be a big lift, says Whitehall resident Ruby Rudolph. Our black people are just so used to not getting things through the state or the state helping them. So they just, a lot of them just 
just don't bother. State health officials acknowledge the generational trust issues and say they're working with local pastors and other community leaders to foster a better relationship. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Lowndes County, Alabama. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The Washington Post is offering buyouts to 240 staffers. It's just the latest news outlet to shrink this year. There were stark warnings from the paper's top brass in a meeting with staff earlier today. Joining us now with more details is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so why is the Post cutting so many jobs right now? What's happened is that you've really seen their fortunes fade since 2021. They've been profitable for a number of years. The Trump years were very good for the Post. And afterward, things seem to have fallen off. You know, digital ads fell by more than 30 percent. Their uh, subscriber base uh, peaked at close to 3 million, and now it's down to about 2.5. You know, this was a paper that flourished in the Trump years. It appears to have floundered once he was uh, out of office. A tough blow to a paper that really investigated then-President Trump and his his presidency, but also has been, you know, covering so many vital issues so intently since. I think one thing that news executives there are citing is that news fatigue is hitting all media, but the Washington Post is a paper identified with covering federal issues has been hit particularly hard. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, with respect to these buyouts, what details can you share? Sure. There was a staff meeting this morning. It was said to be pretty intense. Hundreds of people attended. Uh, They're looking to get buyouts 240 and to split them evenly. That is, hoping to get 120 uh, buyouts from news, 120 uh, from the business side. Uh, The acting uh, CEO, Patty Stonecipher, told staffers they're looking to make even cuts. That is, half from news. Uh, They're hoping for these voluntary buyouts to be accepted by 120 people on the news side, 120 from the business side and that the leadership will reconvene in December. If not enough people step forward, they've tried to offer what they say are generous buyout packages. But she says that spreadsheet projections shared with staff and executive teams in the past about subscriber growth were, it sounds like, were irresponsible. She said those were wrong. Uh, And she said that, you know, the major investments in the newsroom were often not supported by the finances. Uh, So what they appear to be doing is even as we're speaking, uh, reaching out to journalists across the newsroom, particularly those uh, in areas that did not have high readership, did not either attract or retain subscribers and ads uh, to see to reduce their ranks and focus on those areas where they see possible growth ahead. They say they want to you know, put the post back on a path to health. Well, of course, a lot of this hits close to home. I mean, we at NPR had layoffs ourselves in the spring. Many other news outlets have cut jobs this year. Can you just talk about what are the greater forces at play in this industry? Sure. Look, when I covered and talked to, to on this program and others on our network about what happened earlier the year to us, we, we lost roughly 10 percent of our colleagues in deep cutbacks. And I talked about this seeming collapse of uh, advertising on podcasting. Uh, you saw this at Gimlet, Spotify, uh, Vox, uh, New York Public Radio in recent days, all hard hit. But I think I kind of have to recast my thinking. You have to look at this as a larger phenomenon and blow happening to news media more generally. 13% of the LA Times workforce gone. This will be, if you take into account earlier job cuts in recent months, the Washington Post, over 11% there. You know, this all these things are pullbacks of ads in major cases in anticipation 
of a recession that has yet to arrive and yet has been covered significantly in these media companies. We've seen inflation go down. We've seen the job fronts, you know, repeatedly good news. But there's been a pullback in advertising. People, you know, more broadly in the media are not spending on those ads. And so you're seeing news organizations reliant on them hit pretty hard. That is NPR's David Folkenflik. Thank you so much, David. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. House Republicans in Washington are trying to pick a new speaker. Congressman Steve Scalise got the nomination today, but the path to victory is proving to be complicated. That story and much more coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine. With a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet, une.edu. Winchester Natural Health, services focusing on conditions like endometriosis, thyroid support, and pain management, winchesternaturalhealth.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public, museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Boston Bruins open the regular season tonight. They take on the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden. The puck drops at 7.30. Celtics also play tonight. It's a preseason game. They take on the 76ers in Philadelphia. Dip-off is set for 7 o'clock. Cloudy overnight tonight, about 50 for a low. Sunshine tomorrow with highs in the mid-60s. 68 degrees in Boston at 4.49. WBUR supporters include Lessons in Chemistry. Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. And the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at MOS.org. Scientists are harnessing artificial intelligence in the laboratory. It saves time and resources, but what's lost? The previous, you know, 100 year of science really had to do with a lot of serendipity and a lot of trial and error. The pros and cons of AI-assisted research on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Some of the ways in which Hamas initially attacked Israel on Saturday, that is, taking down communications towers with improvised explosives, paragliding over the border and gunning down civilians, subverted one of Israel's strongest defenses, its Iron Dome. First deployed in 2011, the Iron Dome is a network of radar detectors and missile launchers that work together to intercept incoming rockets. Iron Dome is just one piece of a multi-layered 
set of systems that the Israelis have, but uh, the Iron Dome in particular is, is kind of the poster child. That's Tom Carrico. He directs the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Now, there are three parts that make the Iron Dome work. First, there's the radar. When a rocket is launched into Israel, the system detects it and collects data on its flight path. Next, that information is sent to a computer that calculates where that rocket is going. For rockets and artillery, for ballistic missiles, it's fairly predictable. So if you see something traveling on a particular arc, you kind of know where it's going to be going on the rest of its trajectory. You also know where it's going to end up. Carrico says if the system calculates that the rocket is going to land in a populated area, it activates the last piece of the system, the launcher. When it is told to fire by this somewhat automated system, the first thing that you would see is a Tamir missile coming at it with a good bit of uh, flame and noise. Uh, and then, you know, traveling off toward the trajectory of the threat and then maneuvering and positioning itself to come at the threat from just the right angle and then detonate uh, to destroy it. Now, the system is expensive. Each missile the system launches costs around $40,000, and the U.S. has poured billions of dollars into its development. But it's also highly effective. Israeli officials say the Iron Dome has been 90 to 97 percent effective in recent years and that it has helped save lives against Hamas rockets that have been fired since Saturday's offensive started. Villages across Japan's countryside are facing extinction as the population ages and shrinks. NPR's Anthony Kuhn visited Japan's most aged village, where most residents are over age 65. He reports on the village's efforts to attract young people to reinvigorate it. About 70 miles northwest of Tokyo, a river runs through mountains with forests of cedar and bamboo. A winding road parallels the stream and passes through the village of Nanmoku. The road brought 24-year-old Satomi Oigawa here from Tokyo a year ago after she graduated from college. I wanted to be self-sufficient, and I value interaction with other people. I felt like my relations with people in Tokyo were too shallow and broad. So from a young age, I really wanted to live in the countryside. Most Japanese, though, are moving the other way. The population here has shrunk from 11,000 in 1955 to about 1,500 today. At that rate of decline, there could be nobody left in just over a decade. The village is on the cutting edge of Japan's rural depopulation, a trend other nations in Asia and Europe are following. The number of Japanese over the age of 100 is at a record high, new births are at a record low. But where others see a dilapidated, declining village, Oigawa sees potential. This is motainai. Motainai is a Japanese philosophical concept that says we should waste nothing and get every bit of value out of what we have, whether it's time, space, things, or people. Oigawa pursues this goal working for the village government, matching abandoned homes with potential new residents. She's found an entrepreneur to convert an old silk factory into an Airbnb, and she's looking for someone to take over an abandoned konjac starch factory and adjacent home. The home's tatami straw mats are tidy but dusty. A clock on the wall is frozen at five minutes to five. Everything about this house is part of the village's history. I'm very happy to see people who want to move here connect with the village residents' memories. 
beneath Nanmoku's weather-beaten surface, there's an undercurrent of genki, the Japanese term for vigor or vitality. It comes from both enterprising newcomers like Oigawa and from tenacious elderly residents like Hachiro Koganizawa. Oigawa drives up a steep mountainside to visit Koganizawa. He picks some cucumbers and peppers and puts them in a bag for her. He's still farming flowers and vegetables at age 90. Because of the farmer's spirit, we don't retire. That spirit that we work until we die has been planted in us for generations. Koganizawa says that life in Nanmoku has become more convenient, but there are fewer people around to live it. There's now a road that goes up the mountain, but there's nobody there to farm it. A survey conducted in 2018 found that Nanmoku's elderly walk faster, grip stronger, and suffer less dementia than seniors in other parts of the country. But if it's to remain on the map, the village must attract more young people and increase the birth rate. Mayor Saijo Hasegawa has seen some years where not a single baby was born in the village. Central and Nanmoku village governments offer incentives to lure young residents, but there are few jobs for them to do. Despite that, Hasegawa aims to stabilize the village population in 15 to 20 years' time. By then, the village's population is expected to be around 800, about half its current size. We believe we'll be able to keep it at that level from then on. Peter Matanley, a Japan expert at the University of Sheffield in England, says some villages like Nanmoku may thrive and even grow, but they'll be bucking an overwhelming trend. Japan is currently losing six, seven hundred thousand people annually, and that's going to increase to more than a million by the 2030s. Under that situation, how do settlements maintain their populations, let alone increase their populations? Matanley says that many young Japanese have done brilliantly at injecting new ideas and life into aging villages. Then again, he notes, many others have retreated to the cities after their businesses went bust, or they just found life in the countryside too hard and lonely. Yuta Sato came to Nanmoku five years ago for its natural beauty, and because he couldn't find a good job just out of college. But he says it's not easy to raise children in this village. There are no kids in this village that are the same age as my daughter and that can be her classmates. Sato, 29, has started an Uber Eats-style delivery service, but there aren't many restaurants around to make the food. The nearest hospital is in another town an hour's drive away. Sato adds that he's been disappointed to learn that not all of Nanmoku's residents welcome newcomers like himself. Some people say that instead of throwing money around to attract immigrants, they should spend it on the people already living in the village. Sato says he came to Nanmoku in hopes of finding a job he could stick with for about 40 years. But he's not optimistic that by that time, the village of Nanmoku will still exist. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Nanmoku Village, Gunma Prefecture, Japan. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the Kauffman Foundation, 
providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis, better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply, now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Could the U.S. House have a Speaker Scalise? Republican Steve Scalise today got his party's nomination to fill the vacancy as Speaker of the House. We need to make sure we're sending a message to people all throughout the world that the House is open and doing the people's business. Not yet, though. It's Wednesday, October 11th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Israelis in a town just a couple of miles from the Gaza Strip recount the carnage that Hamas militants caused there over the weekend. And we hear from a Palestinian man born in Gaza and now living in Western Mass. His family is in Gaza, where Israel is trying to wipe out Hamas militants. He can't contact his relatives and is worried. We are talking about their own survival. I mean, this is the only thing that comes to my mind. And if they have enough food, or if they have enough medication. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. As Israel readies a ground operation in Gaza, families of the victims of Saturday's brutal attack by Hamas militants are holding funerals. NPR's Leila Fadl is in Rahat in southern Israel. I'm in a Palestinian Israeli town about 20 miles from the Gaza border, and like so many across this area, they're also mourning. They've just buried someone that was killed on Saturday when Hamas attacked, but they're also related to so many across the border in Gaza, and they say they can't speak to their family. That area now is under siege. There's no connection. There's no fuel. Electricity has run out and water, so it's a dire situation. The death toll on both sides continues to rise with more than a thousand people killed in the Hamas attack in Israel and an equal number in Gaza as Israel retaliates with airstrikes. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who accused the militants of mutilating and burning some victims alive, announced today he's created a wartime cabinet to oversee the fighting. Senior Biden administration officials led a classified briefing on Capitol Hill today to discuss the Hamas-led attack. NPR's Susan Davis reports a House resolution condemning Hamas has 400 co-sponsors so far. House Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall told reporters the Hamas ground attack was a failure for both U.S. and Israeli intelligence forces. McCall has drafted a bipartisan resolution with the top Democrat on the panel, Gregory Meeks of New York, that condemns Hamas. McCall and other top lawmakers are calling for an aid package for Israel to help replenish its Iron Dome defense system. He also said the U.S. military is working with Israeli forces to rescue American hostages held by Hamas. 
Susan Davis, NPR News, the Capitol. House Republicans appear to have settled on their choice of speaker to replace the ousted Kevin McCarthy, but the timing of a vote and the outcome remain uncertain. Republicans nominated current House Majority Leader Steve Scalise for the job, but it's unclear when a vote will come, whether Scalise even has the votes to win. The House has adjourned for the afternoon. Legal advocates for transgender rights today challenged a North Carolina law that restricts gender-affirming care to minors. Jason DeBruin of member station WUNC has the story. Over the summer, the Republican-led state legislature outlawed nearly all gender-affirming care that doctors could provide to anyone under 18. That includes restrictions on puberty blockers and hormone replacement therapy. Alex Sheldon is executive director of GLAMA, health professionals who advance LGBTQ plus equality. The singular goal is to prevent health professionals from providing health care to one specific group of individuals, transgender and non-binary North Carolinians. That is discrimination. Plaintiffs are seeking a preliminary injunction to block the law's effects while the lawsuit advances. It was filed in the Middle District of North Carolina. For NPR News, I'm Jason DeBruin in Raleigh, North Carolina. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow closed up 65 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A local company has evacuated some Americans who were in Israel at the time of the Hamas attacks over the weekend. Two groups of about 20 people were traveling with a Boston-based agency, Road Scholar. Maeve Hartney of Road Scholar says the groups were evacuated to Jordan. It went really smoothly. I mean, obviously the participants were a little shaken, but they knew they were in good hands and we were able to communicate with them constantly about what to expect next, what we were working on, and what would happen. Hartney says the company has canceled all trips to Israel through the end of the year. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey is leading a congressional coalition urging President Biden to pass a so-called Artificial Intelligence Bill of Rights. This will be part of an executive order the president is expected to sign in the coming weeks. A letter sent to the president today calls for artificial intelligence protections, including algorithmic discrimination protections to avoid bias and data privacy. Prosecutors have named the third person wanted in connection with a Holyoke shooting last week that killed a pregnant woman's baby. Police are still looking for Kermit Alvarez. The Hampton County DA's office says the 28-year-old is considered armed and dangerous. Two other men involved in an altercation prior to the shooting have been arraigned on murder charges. A new study from Boston University researchers finds that the frequent use of chemical hair relaxers can greatly increase the risk of women developing uterine cancer. The hair products are heavily marketed toward black women to straighten curly or coiled hair. The 22-year study of nearly 45,000 black women found that regular use of hair relaxer correlated with a greater than 50% increased risk of uterine cancer. Epidemiologist Kim Bertrand says that many women use the products to avoid hair-based discrimination. Policies against discrimination of natural hair, such as the Crown Act, which is a, a relatively new policy, I think these are really important steps that can be used to potentially reduce exposure to these toxic chemicals. She also recommends that these and other cosmetic products be more tightly regulated. In the forecast overnight tonight, pretty heavy on the clouds. Some random showers before midnight, about 50 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should feature a lot more sunshine than clouds, about 70 degrees tops, making for a pretty nice day. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington, where a majority of House Republicans nominated a new speaker today. But plenty of party division remains. The closed-door tally was 113 to 99 for House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who beat out Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. Here's Scalise. I want to thank my House Republican colleagues for just designating me as the speaker. Obviously, we still have work to do. We're going to have to go upstairs on the House floor and resolve this and then get the House opened again. But for hours today, Republicans have gone back and forth on when they will be ready to go upstairs and take that speaker vote to the House floor. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Griselis has been following all of this. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So I know you were there as Republicans took this vote. They were behind closed doors today. They nominated a new speaker. What did they say when they finally opened those doors and and, and uh, left the meeting? Right. It was quite the rush. Republicans left the meeting still pretty divided. Some were ready for Scalise to take over as speaker and turn the page on this tumultuous chapter for their conference. For example, I talked to Tim Burchett of Tennessee. He was one of those who voted to oust former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He voted for Scalise, but at the same time, he's unclear when the conference would get on the same page. And some who supported Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, such as freshman Republican Max Miller of Ohio, were visibly upset after the results, saying they would continue to vote for Jordan. And then we saw other members, such as Chip Roy of Texas, post on social media their frustration that the conference would try to rush this to the floor with the vote as close as it was. What about Jim Jordan himself? Has he conceded? Well, my colleague Deirdre Walsh reports that after the meeting, he said he plans to vote for Scalise on the floor of the House, and he's encouraging his colleagues to do the same. But it was clear from a new flurry of closed-door meetings with House Republicans today that followed this nomination that there's still a lot of work to do to convince Jordan's supporters to vote for Scalise instead. So I'm just trying to keep up here. There is still a possibility that they will vote on the House floor today? There is, but it seems that it is shrinking as the day goes by. That was the original goal, and acting House Speaker Patrick McHenry earlier today expressed optimism that they could. But he said this after Republicans met on the House floor briefly, only to recess. Originally, the hope was they were going to take this vote up then. So it's a reminder of how fluid this really is and that many members for now are hoping not to relive the process we saw in January when it took McCarthy 15 rounds to get picked as speaker. All right. Well, tell us more about the man of the hour, this hour at least, <laughs> Steve, right. Steve Scalise. Who <laughs> this is he? hour, right. He is the second ranking Republican in the House. He's well-liked. He's also faced a series of personal challenges. For example, he was injured in the 2017 mass shooting during a House Republican baseball team practice in Alexandria, Virginia. He's undergone multiple surgeries, and you could see him for some time using a cane to get around. Now he's battling a blood cancer known as multiple multiple myeloma. And in terms of his ideological spectrum, he's more to the right of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and he's faced his share of controversies, for example, voting against certifying the results of the 2020 election. And just briefly, if he does prevail, I guess he's staring down a government shutdown for, for that November? That is a top challenge. And he also says another first order of business is to pass a resolution to make clear that the House stands with Israel. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you.
Israel has completed the evacuation of its civilians living near the Gaza border. An NPR team visited one empty town that was hit by both rocket fire and by Hamas fighters in the streets. Our team went to see the aftermath, talk to first responders, and gather new details about the atrocities that occurred there. Here's NPR's Daniel Estrin and a warning. This report contains graphic descriptions of violence. The police station in the city of Sderot is gone. This is the scene of a 24-hour firefight between Palestinian militants who came in from Gaza, took over this police station, killed the police officers inside. Israeli police then came, surrounded it, and there was a 24-hour firefight here. A tank rolled through, says Dolev Derry, who lives next door, and it decimated the rocket-proof police station, killing the militants inside. A symbol of Israeli security in the city, razed to the ground, cleared away by bulldozers. We stop at an apartment building hit by Gaza rocket fire just yesterday. There are some people living there who didn't evacuate. A Ukrainian immigrant who's a caregiver for an ill Holocaust survivor. So one woman from a country at war taking care of a survivor of another war in a country fighting a new war. And a few floors above, there are eight guest workers from China. They're construction workers. They're in a room with beds and cooking pots. We call NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Asia to translate Jianhua, who says their boss told them there weren't any vehicles to get them out. He says that basically they've been hearing rocket and uh, gunfire since Saturday night, and therefore they've been very afraid. Uh, But they've been reassured by the presence of uh, Israeli soldiers and police. This city of about 35,000 is about half a mile from the Gaza border. You can hear the booms of the fighting. At the entrance of the city, there's a reinforced outdoor shelter a rest stop for medics and soldiers. My role is I'm a a sergeant, mainly in the field I lead a team. Um, We were here from Sabbath. Effie Menachem, an immigrant from the UK, is the sergeant of a special forces unit of the paramilitary border police. He tells us what he saw on the first day of the attack. The first thing I uh, encountered was um, on one side of the road, I've got, uh, we've got a hostage situation going on where they've got complete control of a house with the hostages inside. On the left, we've got um, a few terrorists who entered the home and uh, massacred the family that were inside. And we knew that there were around two terrorists left alive over there. Um, I climbed onto a roof with the head of my unit. I identified the terrorists right under me, um, probably like five meters. Uh, I shot down at him 15 times. Uh, got rid of him. Then we joined up. We uh, we drove over to different villages which we knew were under attack. Uh, one was Miftahim, where we found lots of dead bodies everywhere. There were bodies everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Children slaughtered, heads chopped off, bodies burnt. Um, sorry, heads chopped off? Did you see that yourself? I saw everything. I saw things which you wouldn't want to see. Burnt bodies everywhere. Uh, brutalized body. They were chopped off or they were burnt off? Or yeah, I don't know exactly what they did. A bit of both, maybe. Have you had a chance to breathe, maybe cry? No. Any any emotions, you lock away, you keep it You keep it away, you stay tight-knit with your team. You stay together, you sit together, you talk together. Many, a lot of jokes, dark humor, and keeping morale high, and we're here to fight. 
you think about what's happening on the other side in Gaza right now? No. No. I I hear every now and again news or whatever. I tell my team don't don't open the news, don't look at the news. It's not relevant. The only thing that's relevant is here, the mission we have. You can't look at the larger picture. What we see is what we see, and we move on. We keep fighting. At this makeshift rest area is medic Naomi Galeano, who also responded that day. They throw the keys at us and say, just say, go, go. So it was me and the driver uh, in one ambulance. We started to go through the road, and you see the bodies all over. In the first kilometer, you see families butchered next to their cars or in their cars. There is no army yet. It's 2 o'clock, like 2.30. The army only got there at like 4. You're just like in your head, you're like, I want to take as many live people as I can. How many live people did you take? I don't know. Not enough. There were more dead than live. The world doesn't even know yet the amount of butchered bodies. And and we're with the commando forces. And they went in. You hear gunshots. And then they opened the gate. And they lined us up, all the medics, in a line. And they start throwing injured bodies out. And then the doctors, like, they're checking if there is any pulse to the ambulance. No pulse, side. We didn't even... We didn't even stop to do a CPR because, you know, you're under fire. You don't even stop to do that. And at some point, the soldier stopped me and I just like, please take my friend's body. Please take my friend's body. Please don't leave him. And, and you like, you look at him and you're like, no, I can't. I'm sorry. We only, we only take the live ones. You have a necklace on with two kids. Are those, do you have two kids? Yeah, I have two boys. Yeah, two amazing boys. Two and a half and six. Do you think about your kids in these last couple of days? All the time. I speak with them all the time in video chat and everything. And they know I'm out here. Um, what do you tell them? So the, my big kid is, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty That's smart. A, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's pretty, We just see a boom yeah. there. What is that? That's a rocket? And, yeah, that's uh, a rocket towards us. One no, minute. Is it a rocket or is, a, is it a... <laughs> She's just called everyone to come inside the safe room. Yeah. We are squeezed in here with the medics, with the soldiers. Get in, get in, get in. Wow, you can feel these booms on the walls of this concrete safe house. We step outside. And okay, I gotta go, sorry. She's running, she's, she's running to the ambulance. Rockets. They speed away in their ambulance as the war rages on on its fifth day. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Steyrot. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was an update on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about two-tenths of a percent. S&P rose four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained just over seven-tenths of a percent. The Boston-based biotech AOADX is relocating much of its operation to Colorado. The company today announced $17 million funding round along with its first clinical trial. 
AOADX focuses on early detection technology for ovarian cancer. Company founders tell the Boston Business Journal real estate costs in Boston contributed to its decision to move. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections, providing home inspections not only for buyers and sellers, but also for homeowners who need impartial advice about repairs and renovations. Whether for replacing a roof or upgrading a heating system, JBS provides personalized inspections for homeowners in Greater Boston. More at jbsinspections.com. Boston Bruins begin their centennial season tonight at the Garden. They don't look that old. They'll be hosting one of the other original six teams in the NHL, the Chicago Blackhawks, 7.30 start time. Celtics are still in preseason play. They're out in Philadelphia tonight to take on the 76ers. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by McLean Hospital. For expert research-based psychiatric care, turn to McLean. Leading clinicians treating depression, anxiety, addiction, and more. Innovative care from specialists dedicated to improving lives. U.S. News ranks McLean number one for psychiatric care in the country. More at McLeanHospital.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Should be mostly cloudy overnight tonight, down to about 50 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine with highs close to 70. 63 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today, the six conservative members of the Supreme Court seemed likely to dash Democratic hopes for a chance to win a second congressional seat in South Carolina. At issue was the way the Republican state legislature drew new congressional maps after the 2020 census. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Today's case was particularly important because race and partisanship so often overlap, particularly in racially polarized states like South Carolina. And while the court has previously said that partisan gerrymanders do not violate the Constitution, it's also said that racial gerrymanders do. Specifically at issue in today's case was the way the GOP legislature evened out the population between Congressional District 1, CD1, which encompassed Charleston County, County and had 88,000 too many voters, and the neighboring CD6, represented by the state's only black congressman, which had too few voters. Now, you might think that the easy solution would be to move the excess voters from CD1 to CD6. Instead, though, the GOP plan chopped up Charleston County, stripping from CD1 almost all of the city of Charleston, and ending its 120-year history as the anchor for the district. The NAACP promptly challenged the GOP redistricting, and a three-judge district court, after an eight-day trial, concluded that the plan was an unconstitutional racial gerrymander that targeted black voters in order to achieve a safer Republican district. 
Today, at the Supreme Court, all the justices acknowledged that they were not supposed to review the lower court's fact-finding. The question was only whether that court had made a legal error. So when John Gore, representing the Republican legislature, kept pointing to the lower court's factual findings, an exasperated Chief Justice Roberts asked, If I could move to 30,000-foot perspective, how do you understand what we're supposed to do in evaluating clear error? After all, said Roberts with a large gesture, there are vast appendices in this case. Justice Alito interjected. Well, the clear error standard doesn't mean that we simply rubber stamp findings by a district court. Despite all the talk about not second-guessing factual findings, the conservative justices, including Roberts, did question the lower court's conclusion that the legislature had targeted black voters. Justice Alito. When race and partisanship are so closely aligned, it isn't surprising that when you want to get a district that has a certain Republican percentage, you're going to have fewer black voters. He and several other conservatives criticized the NAACP for not producing an alternative map. NAACP lawyer Leah Aiden maintained that the black voters had produced something better than an alternative map, unrebutted evidence that race was the predominant factor in determining who was moved out of the district. Justice Kagan followed up on that. 69% of white Democrats remained in the district, whereas only 51% of black Democrats did. Black Democrats and white Democrats are not being treated the same way, that black Democrats are being excluded for the district at a far greater proportion. Justice Jackson, what kind of proof is needed here? A smoking gun? But the conservatives weren't buying it. Justice Gorsuch stressed the legal presumption that the legislature had acted in good faith, and he, like Justices Thomas and Alito, questioned why the NAACP had not presented an alternative map. Justice Kavanaugh pointed to the complicated political trade-offs in the redistricting, and Justice Barrett, too, seemed skeptical of the NAACP argument. A decision is expected later in the term. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Inflation is hitting many parts of the economy, and now that includes Girl Scout cookies. That's right, a box of Do-C-Dos will soon cost more dough in many parts of the country. And if you like s'mores, well, you might have to pay some more. The one and only NPR Scott Horsley reports. Girl Scout troops in the Northeast made headlines this fall when they announced that cookie prices will be going up next season. That box of Samoas that used to sell for $5 will soon cost 6 to help cover rising ingredients and labor costs at the two commercial bakeries that make the cookies. Like many other products that you're seeing out in the world, our Girl Scout cookies are not immune to a lot of the same rising costs. Wendy Liu is Chief Revenue Officer for Girl Scouts of the USA. She's also the cookie manager for her seven-year-old daughter's Girl Scout troop in Connecticut. She's a brownie. That's part of the conversation that we'll have this year. It really is a little microcosm of what it's like to run your business and deal with the real pressures, including inflation. Many Girl Scout troops on the West Coast already raised their cookie prices earlier this year. Ten-year-old Madison Patstone says it was an adjustment. She'd already memorized the cost of up to 12 boxes of cookies at the old $5 price. Now she had to learn to multiply by six. She also had to explain to customers why their thin mint purchasing power is thinner than it used to be. People were like, 
here's 20. And then they picked out four cookie boxes. And we're like, oh, sorry, it's only three this year. And they're like, what? So that was one of the hard parts, telling that inflation has come to their nostalgic cookies. Patstone still managed to sell more than 2,400 boxes this year, making her one of the top sellers in San Diego. This was the first time Girl Scouts in San Diego had raised their prices since 2015, and the 20% increase is smaller than the 22% jump in the price of store-bought cookies over the last two years. Ashley Hilliard, who's been selling Girl Scout cookies for a decade, says most customers were understanding. If they asked about the price increase, you know, we would very politely explain, like, unfortunately, due to the inflation going on across the country right now, we've had to up our rates so that we can still make a profit and provide these programs for girls. Proceeds from the cookie sale cover about 70% of the Girl Scouts' budget in San Diego. Each council sets its own prices, but neighboring councils often move together in what you might call the tag-along effect. Carol Dietrich, who heads the San Diego Council, says all the Girl Scouts in California raised their prices to $6 this year. They saw little, if any, drop in sales. Most of us, if not all of us, had a very successful cookie program. Here in San Diego, we had the best program since prior to COVID. Nationwide, Girl Scouts sell about 200 million boxes of cookies every year. That's more than Oreos, even though Girl Scout cookies are only on sale for a few months each year. Sally Lyons-Wyatt knows a thing or two about the cookie business. I've been a snacking expert for a couple of decades. Lyons-Wyatt is an executive vice president with a big market research firm, Circana. She's also a former Girl Scout. She does not expect the $1 price increase to take much of a bite out of sales. Because it isn't just about a cookie, right? Now, granted, if they did something crazy, like it's going to cost you 20 bucks for a one little package, okay, well, then maybe we would find that there's a cliff. But if we're talking about a nominal price increase, then I don't think it's going to have an impact on demand. Back in San Diego, Madison Patstone's already setting goals for the next selling season when she hopes to top her own record by selling 2,500 boxes. Because the season isn't very long, you'll have to wait a whole year to get them again. So might as well just stock up. A freezer full of Girl Scout cookies might be a good hedge against future inflation, so long as you don't eat them all at once. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. A dry evening ahead tonight. Just the chance of showers, but a fair share of clouds through the night, falling to 50. Clouds should find their way out of here by tomorrow, leaving sunshine for the day. Temperatures close to 70 degrees, sunny but cooler on Friday. 65 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com Lessons in Chemistry Oscar winner Brie Larson stars as a chemist who hosts a cooking show, proving life doesn't follow a formula. Streaming October 13th on Apple TV+. And Renewal by Anderson, a full-service window and door replacement company, supporting the American Cancer Society. Learn more at RenewalByAndersonCares.com. Scientists are harnessing artificial intelligence in the laboratory. It saves time and resources, but what's lost? The previous, you know, 100 year of science really had to do with a lot of serendipity and a lot of trial and error. The pros and cons of AI-assisted research on the next morning edition from NPR News.
Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is vowing that the U.S. will do all it can to support Israel in its war with Hamas militants. That includes using backup military force if necessary. The Pentagon already has one aircraft carrier in the Mediterranean with another on its way. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters before leaving for a trip to Israel today that the U.S. is ready to take action should any actor hostile to Israel try to escalate or widen the war. We're determined to make sure that Israel gets everything it needs to defend itself, to provide for the security of its people. Already, significant military assistance requested by Israel is on the way. That's on top of everything that we've been doing uh, for years, including with the memorandum of understanding that was negotiated by President Obama uh, to make sure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. Meanwhile, the Homeland Security Secretary and U.S. Attorney General are taking additional steps here to boost security and address concerns that the attacks on Israel could translate to increasing threats to Jewish communities elsewhere. A court in Moscow has fined a prominent Russian human rights activist who's been warning that Russia's sliding into fascism. NPR's Philip Reeves says he's also been criticizing the war on Ukraine. 70-year-old Oleg Olov is a veteran anti-war campaigner whose protests have landed him in trouble before. He's co-chair of the human rights group Memorial, one of the winners of last year's Nobel Peace Prize. Prosecutors charged him with discrediting the Russian military over a Facebook post criticising the war. The hearing was open to the media. Olov defended himself. He told the court that President Vladimir Putin's Russia was similar to the totalitarian state depicted in George Orwell's novel 1984. Olof afterwards acknowledged that his punishment, a $1,500 fine, was light and urged his supporters to remember political prisoners in Russia. That's This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Palestine Film Festival is postponing its live events that were to start in arts venues in and around Boston Friday. The organization says the postponement is in part because of safety concerns caused by tensions over the fighting between Israel and Hamas. The festival's director of programming, Michael Maria, says the live events would have provided a space for members of the Boston Palestinian community to support each other. It's a part of what made this such a difficult decision. But at the same time, it also felt very wrong for us to come together, sit in a movie theater in the safety and comfort of a, of a Boston venue while our relatives in Palestine are at risk every minute. Maria says he hopes the festival will return next year. The festival's virtual screenings will go on as scheduled. Attorneys who represent more than 50 women have filed a class action lawsuit against a former Brigham and Women's Hospital rheumatologist. Dr. Derek Todd is accused of performing medically unnecessary pelvic and breast exams. Several medical facilities associated with Todd are also named in the suit as our high-ranking administrators. Todd agreed to stop practicing as a doctor in July. His lawyer has denied the doctor did anything wrong. The State Department of Public Health wants to give some pharmacists permission to dispense hormonal contraceptives directly to patients. The proposal came up at a public health council meeting today. It would allow for the prescriptions to be filled regardless of whether a primary care provider had prescribed them. Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says the measure is in response to changing reproductive health policies around the country. Massachusetts U.S. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says while the U.S. House elects a new speaker, the Senate is equally inert. 
Auchincloss faults some Republican senators for holding up dozens of nominations. They include a number of diplomatic and military posts abroad. It's unacceptable. They need to act. We need uh, fully confirmed officials in their positions. Just this morning, I got a briefing from three different acting officials across the state and Pentagon. That is not the posture of readiness that the United States needs at a time of increasing uncertainty and danger. On the House speakership, Auchincloss says Democrats are united behind Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. He spoke today on WBOR's Radio Boston. And jury selection has begun in the trial of two women accused in an embezzling scheme against the Boston Center for Adult Education. 70-year-old Susan Brown was the center's executive director. She's accused of filing forged tax forms that caused the center to lose its tax-exempt status. Prosecutors also say she paid 66-year-old Karen Kalfian more than $500,000 over seven years for marketing that Kalfian never performed. Last year, the center's comptroller pleaded guilty to embezzling more than $1 million from the organization. The center has stopped offering classes and special programming. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Clouds should thicken through the overnight hours. Light rain possible before midnight. Tomorrow should be sunny and dry and nice, close to 70 degrees. 65 in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, Supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at mott.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. About a month ago, we called an old Middle East hand here in Washington to the phone. His name is Aaron David Miller. He spent much of his career at the State Department trying to help broker a path to peace in the Middle East. When we spoke, the occasion was the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords, a historic peace deal between Israel and Palestinians. I thought wrongly, in horrible misjudgment, I must say, that uh, the peace process, so-called, had become uh, irreversible and there was no going back. Fast forward to today, day five of outright war between Israel and Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement that rules the Gaza Strip. Aaron David Miller, welcome back to All Things Considered. Mary Louise, it's always a pleasure to be with you. You know, when you and I talked a month ago, I could not have imagined that we could feel so much farther from peace. I could not have imagined how much worse things could get. It is true. But, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. The arc of history bends in very strange ways. I remember 50 years ago last week being in Jerusalem and hearing the sirens wail when Egypt and um, Syria attacked Israel. And yet within six years, there was an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. Hmm. 20 years later, I sat on the White House lawn watching Arafat, Clinton, and Rabin signed the Oslo Accords, convinced that we'd reached a point of no return. And yet that hope turned to trauma. So 
This is why I'm reserving judgment on the notion that this is going to result in a catastrophe and a devastation. This is so interesting because when I talked to you a month ago, you sounded cautiously hopeful. It's despite yes. everything, you still sound cautiously hopeful. We, we are about to enter, Mary Louise, a very long and deep and dark tunnel. The goals of the Israeli operation have not yet been made clear, but whatever they are, uh, the nature of one of the most densely populated areas on the planet and the close combat quarters and probably an expansion of Israel's rules of engagement, given the terror horrors that Hamas has created in southern Israel, hmm. uh, are going to combine to create a catastrophe for the Palestinians who live in Gaza. There's no question about that. All I'm suggesting is the arc of history bends in very strange directions, and there is no military solution to this problem. So I, I refuse to abandon um, the notion that everything is lost, and I realize how strange that seems in the wake of the horrors we witnessed. I, I want you to listen to part of what President Biden said yesterday. He spoke at the White House. He described the attack over the weekend by Hamas in graphic terms. This was an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Not just killed, slaughtered. Aaron David Miller, you have served many years, served multiple administrations, both Democratic and Republican here in Washington. As you listened to Biden at the White House yesterday, I wonder, have you ever heard an American president so, not just so forceful, but so angry in his defense of Israel? The answer is no. That was the most personal and emotional speech I think I've ever heard Joe Biden give. His reference to the black hole of loss was deeply personal in view of the president's own experience. And it reflects a president of a different generation, a president whose love for Israel, the people of Israel, the idea of Israel is deeply impressed on his emotional and political DNA, not for Benjamin Netanyahu, not for the current government of Israel. On the specifics of the U.S. response, the U.S. has deployed a carrier strike group to the Mediterranean. The U.S. is sending weapons, military assistance. Is this the right move? What's your assessment of, of how the U.S. Is, is responding so far? I mean, right now, we are not a central player. Uh, we can give all the advice we want to the Israelis, but this is being driven by an Israeli government who has presided over the largest loss in a single day of Jews since the Nazi Holocaust. And that frame, I think, is going to drive the Israelis to deepen and broaden this campaign, as they have said and many Israeli officials, to, quote, create a new reality. Create a new Middle East, uh, as uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put it. I, I, Israel is cutting off food and water and electricity to Gaza. We were getting word today from Gaza that the power there is now out. Does the U.S., even as it stands with its ally Israel, have a responsibility to stand with Palestinian civilians? I think that's absolutely the case. And, and how does it do that? Is that through pressuring Netanyahu and saying, we support you, but there are lines? I think uh, it's it's not a satisfactory response, Mary Louise, but, you know, the U.S. is now involved in negotiating with the Egyptians and the Israelis to create a humanitarian corridor, which would allow humanitarian aid, food and medicine in through Egypt and allow Palestinians and 
U.S. aid workers or in Gaza uh, to leave. I, I do not expect that you are going to see a blanket condemnation of Israeli tactics now, let alone a declaration that the Israelis have violated um, international law in what they've done. That may, in fact, be the case. But you're not going to hear that from this administration. You um, will be aware there's a lot of talk about a coming ground invasion, that it is inevitable that Israel will try to completely crush Hamas in Gaza. Do you believe that? Is it inevitable? Uh, no. And I'm, I'll be looking forward to the articulation of the Israeli goals, which they really have to do to the public. Is this wash, rinse, and repeat simply to retard Hamas's military capacity, try to kill its leadership? Or is this something more fundamental to actually undermine Hamas's capacity to govern as an organizing body in Gaza? And if, in fact, that is the case, what does the day after look like? Do the Israelis stay for a semi-permanent occupation? Do they call for the UN to come in and create a transition mechanism, bringing the Palestinian Authority from Ramallah with the Saudis and the other Gulf states providing billions of dollars in reconstruction aid and the international community mobilized now for the first time with will, skill, and resources to turn Gaza from an open-air prison into something that offers 2.3 million Palestinians a better quality of life and a future? Is that even remotely possible in the wake of these developments and all of the loss of life? I don't know. I mean, that's my question to you. Do, do you still stand by the notion that, that the only outcome, the only way this truly ends is separation through negotiation? It does feel that's, awfully far away. That's been my position from the beginning. I think it's driven, Mary Louise, by, by the proximity problem. The proximity problem, just explain, that's that they're right next to each other and, and claim the same land? Living on top of one another. Yeah. Future is inextricably linked. Separation of the negotiation is the only solution that addresses the demographic, the political, the psychological problems and the problem of overlapping sacred space. Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was the State Department's deputy special coordinator for Arab-Israeli negotiations. Aaron David Miller, thank you. Mary Louise, thank you. It's always great talking to you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Caroline Ellison has always been seen as the star witness for the U.S. government in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. She was a member of Bankman-Fried's inner circle, and she is also his ex-girlfriend. That gives her unique insight into the disgraced crypto mogul, better known by his initials SBF. And today, she delivered some explosive testimony against him. NPR's David Gura joins us now from outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan. Hi, David. Hey, Elsa. So what happened inside that courtroom today? Well, Caroline Ellison, who is 28 years old, is seen as a key witness because she used to head this hedge fund that Sam Bankman-Fried co-founded, which was at the heart of SBF's crypto empire. It was called Alameda Research. Now, the U.S. government has alleged there was this massive conspiracy orchestrated by Bankman-Fried to defraud customers, investors, and lenders. And Ellison has pleaded guilty to being a part of that scheme. She's a cooperating witness for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. so Elsa, I got to the courthouse four hours early, along with other reporters and members of the public who lined up before dawn to see her Oof. testify. 
testify in person. Dozens more watched it in overflow rooms at the courthouse. I did get in the room, and when the prosecution called Ellison to the witness stand, everyone turned to look. These two giant doors opened at the back, and Ellison was escorted down the center aisle to the witness stand, past reporters. Lawyers were there, including the U.S. attorney for the Southern District, who, the office, whose office is trying this case, and the parents of Ellison's ex-boyfriend. They were also looking on. There was this dramatic moment on her first day of testimony. Right after Ellison took the stand, one of the prosecutors asked her to point out the defendant to the jury, and... We watched Ellison kind of stand up, squint, and then really scan the entire room looking for him. It took Ellison maybe 30 or 40 seconds before she finally laid eyes on SBF, who was sitting at the defendant's table behind a laptop. Now, obviously, these two people know each other very well, Elsa, but a lot has happened since they last saw each other now almost a year ago. And I will also note his hair is cut way shorter than it used to be. <laughs> so maybe she didn't recognize him at first. Okay, so what exactly did Caroline Ellison say in her testimony today? Well, the stakes here are so high because of what Caroline Ellison knows. Yes, she was part of Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle, but she also had this on-again, off-again personal relationship with him going back years to when she was an intern on Wall Street and he was a trader at the same firm. Now, Caroline Ellison alleged that even though she was officially the head of this hedge fund, it was Bankman-Fried who continued to call the shots even after he stepped down from running it full-time. Ellison alleged SBF directed her to use more than $10 billion in customer money to pay for all kinds of things, including investments in risky startups and to pay back debts. Ellison described the immense pressure she was under, of how a lot of the activity she engaged in was misleading and dishonest. Those are her words. And she started to tear up at the end of her testimony when she recalled how relieved she felt when everything finally fell apart last November. You know, what she dreaded for months, Elsa, the collapse of Bankman-Fried's crypto companies, finally had happened. Exactly. All right, so what happens next at this point? Well, we are in week two of what is expected to be a six-week trial. Caroline Ellison's testimony continues tomorrow with cross-examination by the defense. Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers have indicated they're going to argue Ellison was responsible for the collapse because she was not equipped to lead Alameda. In effect, she made massive mistakes and Bankman-Fried was so busy running FTX and meeting with lawmakers and regulators, he just wasn't able to keep tabs on what was going on at a hedge fund. If Ellison's testimony today is any indication, I think we can expect much more drama when she's questioned by Bankman-Fried's defense attorneys tomorrow. To be continued, that is NPR's David Gura outside the federal courthouse in Manhattan. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. We should have partly cloudy skies into the nighttime, 50 degrees for a low tonight. Sunshine tomorrow, a lovely October day, highs in the mid to upper 60s. Sun could return for Friday, staying in the mid-60s. Boston Bruins open the regular season tonight, their 100th. They take on the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden. The puck drops at 7.30. Celtics also play tonight in a preseason game. They take on the 76ers in Philadelphia. Tip-off is set for 7 o'clock. 65 degrees in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Join Juicy, the saucy protagonist, in a sharp, deliciously funny take on the Shakespeare classic. Fat Ham, playing now through October 29th at the Huntington Calderwood, HuntingtonTheater.org. And the Wheeler School, for students in nursery through grade 12. 
Discover where your curiosity can take you at Wheeler. October 21st, open house, wheelerschool.org. The air is crisp, the cider donuts are hot, it's fall in New England. If you're like me, you might be wondering where to go leaf peeping. Here's a tip from our field guide to Boston. There are some relatively easy trails for new hikers or families close to the city, like Blue Hills or Middlesex Fells reservations. But be aware, you might run into a crowd of neighbors also trying to take in the fall colors. If you want something more challenging with less crowds, lace up your hiking boots and head up Caribou Mountain in Maine or Mount Monadnock in New Hampshire. And remember, by the time trees in Boston are changing color, trees further north may already be shedding their leaves. To get more tips like this about navigating the seasons in Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Massachusetts man originally from the Gaza Strip in the Middle East is waiting and hoping for word that his family there is safe. Gaza is the territory from which Hamas militants launched a massive surprise attack on Israel last weekend. Now Gaza is under assault by Israel. We spoke with a man who wants to go only by his first name, Ayman, because he's concerned for his safety. We spoke with him earlier today. He is Palestinian. He came to Massachusetts from Gaza 12 years ago. He lives here with his wife and three children, but everyone else they hold dear is in the battle zone. I have four brothers and four sisters, and of course they have uh, everyone, uh, five kids. I have uh, three uncles in Gaza Strip. And also my wife, all of her sisters, brothers. So all of our family are there. And your parents as well? Yeah. So your relatives are in the center of the Gaza Strip. They live at a refugee camp there, and the Gaza Strip is filled with refugee camps. Have you been able to reach them and find out what their situation is right now, if they're safe? It was extremely hard to reach out to them. I tried to reach to them like through Facebook group chat, and it's extremely hard. I don't see anyone, you know, uh, visible uh, on the chat. So that's why I am extremely scared of their life, uh, especially with my parents. As you know, the situation is very, uh, very extremely horrendous. The Israeli Defense Ministry uh, announced we are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. There will be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. And they will also they will cut uh, medication on, on Gaza. That's why I'm super scared. On my, my dad, he has heart issues. My mother, she has blood pressure issues. And I am, I'm really scared about their life because they are also cutting medications into entering into Gaza City. And uh, for the last two days, also, they destroyed the Gaza crossing the main lifeline to uh, to Gaza, to right. travel overseas. We should say that the main hospital in Gaza is very low on supplies. At the same time, people are still trapped under rubble, and the bombardment is continuing. There has been talk of creating a corridor by which some people, Americans at least, can get out, and possibly some medication can get in, medical supplies. Uh, this is a proposal from Egypt to have this humanitarian corridor. We don't know the status of that right now. The status of your family members, though, have you been able to get word from anybody, even when this all began over the weekend? I got uh, from my sister, and I asked her, 
how are you guys doing? She said, uh, we, are, we are doing fine, but uh, the explosions are everywhere. And most of the time, there are no notification if there's an explosion. So everyone is scared. Kids are scared. People don't sleep very well uh, because, uh, as you know, the drones are hovering. And is there any such thing as a safe room where people can go if they think that there is uh, incoming fire of any sort? No place is safe. And no one knows how bad this will get. There are no shelters in Gaza. As people can imagine, Gaza has been under a very crippling and strict siege since 2006. And there was a shortage of food and supplies and and medication for a while. Gaza has been like without electricity, just four, four hours or six hours of electricity every day for the last 16 years. If you are able to reach your family, is there anything that you can tell them? Is there, it, it, what are you going to say to them? I just want to say if my, ma- if, if my mother is still alive, if my father is still alive, uh, we are talking about their own survival. I mean, uh, this is the only thing that comes to my mind. And if they have enough food or they, if they have enough medication, the first thing is if you have enough medication. Let me ask you this. There, there are people here, people in Massachusetts who have families in Israel who are terrified. You are obviously terrified about what's happening to your family in Gaza right now. As we say goodbye to you, what are you going to do next? Are you trying to get as much news as you can? Are you going to keep calling them? Are you going to just hope for some good news coming your way? How do you occupy your time? I am going to 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 watch the news, try to call them again, again, and until I reach them, I hope I will see them in the near future. As every normal human beings, I wish them love, I wish them safety, and I send them my love. We hope for all the best for your family. Ayman, thank you for speaking with us. You're welcome. That's a Palestinian man named Ayman who was born in Gaza and is living in Western Mass, where he awaits word of his family still in Gaza. A memorial service was held this afternoon for Brian O'Donovan, a longtime host of a Celtic sojourn on GBH Radio and a beloved ambassador of Irish music and culture. The First Church of Cambridge was filled with family, friends, and admirers, including from his native Ireland. The president of Ireland, Michael Higgins, sent a letter to O'Donovan's wife, Lindsay. The Irish Consul General, Sheila Fitzgerald, read it from the altar. On behalf of the people of Ireland, may I express the pride of all of us in him. I have no doubt that the legacy which he leaves behind will live on through you, your children and your grandchildren. O'Donovan's four children gave eulogies. Aidan O'Donovan said even though his father knew the brain cancer he was fighting would ultimately take his life, he continued to laugh and live his final months in a beautiful way. He performed the wedding ceremonies of my brother Kieran and Emily, and also of Maeve and Logan. He splashed in the waves with his grandchildren, Ivy Joe and Nomi, and he held my tiny Harriet in his arms in his final weeks. Brian O'Donovan was also involved in major league sports. He was a vice president of the Patriots and the first general manager of the New England Revolution soccer team. O'Donovan died Friday at the age of 66. 
He was a wonderful man. Our best to Lindsay and the family. He will be missed. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and familiar British comedies starring Greg Davies, David Tennant, Ricky Gervais, Chris O'Dowd, and others. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel's retaliation against Hamas has left the Gaza Strip without electricity. The Red Cross says there are many innocent victims. Sick children, chronic diseases patients, elderly people, pregnant women may have no access to any medical supply or aid or service. More on humanitarian efforts coming up. It's Wednesday, October 11th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more than half of all dog owners in America question the safety, efficacy, or usefulness of the rabies shot, according to a survey. Pet vaccine skepticism is higher among those hesitant of vaccines for humans. And will people use a mobile health van in the parking lot of a Dollar General store for primary care? So far, an experiment in Tennessee is getting a chilly reception. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israel is preparing for what is looking like a major offensive against Hamas following a weekend assault. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in the town of Seyrot near the Gaza border and describes a police station where Hamas members attacked. This is the scene of a disaster zone, a 24-hour firefight when Gaza militants came in, took over this police station, killed the Israeli police officers inside, Israeli police then came, surrounded it, and there was a 24-hour firefight here. We spoke to one Israeli resident who said the firefight was incredible, but then the sight of an Israeli tank coming through his streets, he never imagined in his wildest dreams he would see it came in order to completely eviscerate the police station with all of the militants inside. 
NPR's Daniel Estrin, at least 2,000 people, equal numbers on both sides, have died since the horrific assault by militant Palestinian Hamas fighters. More than 300,000 Israeli reservists have now been called up. The White House, meanwhile, is turning up the pressure on Congress for additional security aid for Ukraine and now Israel. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the supplemental funding will likely be negotiated in a long-term government spending bill. Lawmakers need to pass by the middle of next month. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the White House has been discussing whether aid to Israel could be linked to additional funding for Ukraine as a way to pass both provisions in the upcoming spending bill. We're in active conversations with Congress about additional funding that we need for Israel and for Ukraine. I'm not prepared to detail uh, those conversations for you right now or tell you what the parameters are going to be. Both parties have signaled strong support for additional security aid for Israel in the wake of Saturday's brutal attack carried out by Hamas. Supplemental funding for Ukraine has wavered in recent months amid resistance, mostly from hardline Republicans in the House. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Exxon Mobil is betting big on oil fracking in Texas. NPR Scott Horsley reports the company's agreed to buy rival driller Pioneer Natural Resources for nearly $60 billion. Pioneer is the biggest oil and natural gas producer in the Permian Basin. Buying the company will allow Exxon Mobil to double its energy output from the region. Exxon expects to expand that production in the coming years. The deal is Exxon's biggest acquisition since it merged with Mobil more than two decades ago. It marks growing consolidation in the fracking industry. The company said their combined footprint in the Permian Basin, totaling more than 1.4 million acres, will allow for more efficient drilling in what's already a low-cost area for oil and gas production. The deal is expected to be finalized in the first half of next year. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Stocks close higher on Wall Street today. The Dow is up 65 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Healy administration released a plan today to prepare Massachusetts communities for three major climate threats, inland flooding, high heat, and sea level rise. The plan also creates a new Office of Climate Science, which will be staffed with three climate scientists. Catherine Antos is with the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. She says the office will make sure that state agencies and communities consider climate projections when they plan and invest. We're really baking what are the impacts of climate change into everything that we're doing. And that starts by grounding it in sound science. The plan also entails updating the building code to include requirements for heat and flood resiliency. A new report from the American Immigration Council is highlighting the economic power of immigrants in the greater Salem area. The report found immigrants made up more than 14 percent of business owners in the area in 2019. It also found they generated more than $41 million in business income and helped create and preserve 800 manufacturing jobs. Commuter rail service will return to Lynn a little more than a year after the station was shut down because of safety concerns. WBR's Andrea Perdomo hernandez reports a temporary platform is being installed and service is expected to resume before the end of the year. State transportation leaders gathered with lawmakers and Lynn City officials at 11 Ellis Street, the site of the temporary commuter rail platform. The interim station is three blocks away from the original station, which was closed last October. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang says he was told when he started earlier this year that the temporary platform wouldn't be ready until 2024. I went back to the team and I basically challenged them that there's different ways of doing this, that we can be creative and innovative 
in terms of delivering uh, temporary service. Ang says the platform will open in December, nine months earlier than previously scheduled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Service resumed today on the MBTA's green line between Leachmere and Union Square. It had been shut down for the past three weeks for repairs. The T also announced today that all speed restrictions on the green line extension have been lifted. And former New England Patriots player Sergio Brown has been arrested in connection with his mother's death. Brown and his mother, 73-year-old Myrtle Brown, were reported missing by family members last month. Myrtle Brown was later found dead in a creek near her home in Illinois. CNN reports that Brown traveled to Mexico after his mother's death and was deported yesterday. Brown played with the Pats in 2010 and 2011. Could be heavy on the clouds overnight tonight. Maybe some random showers sometime before midnight. About 50 degrees tonight. Tomorrow should feature a lot more sunshine than clouds. Around 70 tops, making for a pretty nice day tomorrow. Friday should be sunny again, but chillier, barely rising above 60. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Today is the fifth day of war between the Palestinian militant group Hamas and Israel. More than a thousand people have died on each side. Palestinian officials say thousands more have been wounded in Gaza and a quarter million people have been displaced. And Gaza is where we are going to start this hour. Gaza is now cut off from the, the outside world. There is a full scale drop down in the telecommunications system. Hisham Mahana is a communication officer at the International Committee of the Red Cross. We reached him today in Gaza before its main power plant shut down. He says that could throw hospitals into crisis. We fear that hospitals may turn into graveyards if they uh, are not fed with electricity. They are now running either on generators or solar systems, which are not enough to maintain them operational. As Israel blocks fuel, food, and water from entering Gaza, the airstrikes continue. Israel says it has hit 2,500 targets in the Gaza Strip. Last night was one of the deadliest and most horrible nights I have ever witnessed. Many of my friends and colleagues have uh, lost one uh, of their beloved ones. That is Hara El-Haddad, media and communications officer for Oxfam, speaking to us today from Gaza. Every night, she and her parents, brothers, sisters-in-law, nieces and nephews take shelter in her ground floor apartment. We try to calm the children down by telling them stories and telling them that these bombardments are only fireworks, but... Uh, children or all, like my family children, started to um, realize that we are lying to them, and these are not sounds of fireworks. About half of Gaza's more than 2 million residents are children under 15. Al-Haddad says she is not certain what's to come with more airstrikes and a possible ground invasion ahead. I cannot imagine what would happen in the following few hours. Am I going to be dead or alive? I really don't know, but I know for sure that I'm afraid. It's night right now, it's dark, and you feel like also helpless. You cannot do anything. You just like wait for the day to come. 
to see what happened in the night. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians are now sheltering in schools run by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East, or UNRWA. We reached their director of communications today in Athens, Juliet Tuma, and I asked her how well she's been able to keep in touch with her colleagues in Gaza. We are in a constant uh, touch with our colleagues on the ground. UNRWA has 13,000 staff members who work with the agency on the ground. Um, many of them um, are still on the front lines working. However, today is a very sad day for UNRWA and the rest of the United Nations because we can confirm that 11 of our staff have been killed uh, since the 7th of yes. October. So it's a very sad day for all of us. I'm so, so sorry. What more can you Thank tell you. us about those individuals? Five of them were teachers. One was uh, a gynecologist. One is an engineer and others were support staff. Um, they were killed, many of them, while at home with their families due to the airstrikes and mm. the bombardments. And what are you hearing now about how the rest of your colleagues in Gaza are trying to stay safe. How are they doing so right now? Do you know? People are terrified, Elsa. They're really terrified. I mean, we get all these um, these messages. Um, luckily, there is a little bit of internet in the Gaza Strip. So uh, one staff member said to me, I think this is going to be the end for me and my family. One staff member said, we'll be in touch tomorrow if I'm still alive. And for many, many of them, um, this is like the seventh time that they go through an escalation in, in violence and a conflict. But they say to us that this is unprecedented. I understand that now that more than 200,000 people who've been displaced are now sheltering in something like 88 UNRWA schools across the Gaza Strip. Can you just tell us about the conditions at those schools right now and what supplies you need most? So these are schools that normally would give education to about 300,000 kids in the Gaza Strip. Now, we had to close our schools and turn them into shelters because since uh, the 7th of October, just on Saturday, we've had people flocking into our schools to take shelter and the numbers continue to increase as we speak. We've run out right now of um, basic supplies, including things like matrices and cleaning material and hygiene kits. We've been giving people water and, and bread. But we're running very, very fast of, of our supplies. Um, and then not all of these schools are safe, uh, very sadly. Uh, at least two of uh, these schools sheltering the displaced have been hit by airstrikes. Right. Um, fortunately, we did not have any casualties uh, during the time. Well, given that two of your schools have already been hit, how much of a concern is there that the remaining schools will also be hit while you're using them as shelters? It's a reminder that schools are a place of sanctuary. Schools should be protected at all times. Now, in these cases, this is a school that is also a UN school, so it's doubly protected. It should never have been hit. It's a violation of law. It's a violation of, of all war laws. Meanwhile, Israel has announced that it has amassed troops in preparation for an expected ground invasion of Gaza. How is your team preparing for that? Well, first of all, the UN is calling for all fighting everywhere to come to an end. Um, and we're fearing the worst in terms of the coming few 
days, it is very hard for us, of course, to predict what's going to happen. And with the tightening of the blockade and without our ability to get in uh, basic supplies and humanitarian assistance, we're going to be in a very, very difficult situation. Juliet Tuma, Director of Communications for UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Ansel. Many people treat their pet dogs like family and raise them in accordance with their own values. A recent paper finds that human vaccine skepticism is making its way into the pet world. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Cindy Marabito runs a pit bull rescue out of her home in Austin, Texas. We're the only raw-feeding, holistic, completely no-kill, 100% pit bull refuge and rescue in the United States. Right now, she has nine dogs roaming her big backyard near the banks of the Colorado River. Her philosophy is to give low to no vaccines. Why are we giving all these dogs, horses, kittens, cats excessive rabies shots? Health officials say those shots help keep a deadly disease away. In most states, dogs are required to get rabies shots every three years. But Marabito is one of many pet owners with canine vaccine hesitancy. According to a recent survey out of Boston University, 53% of U.S. dog owners question if the rabies vaccine is safe, if it works, or if it's useful. Lori Teller is a veterinarian at Texas A&M and former head of the American Veterinary Medical Association. I find it very disturbing Uh, The rabies vaccine has been around for decades, and it is so incredibly safe, especially when you consider the risk of death. Teller says skepticism towards human vaccines has risen with the politics around COVID and the anti-vaccine movement against childhood shots. And I am extremely concerned um, that, that we're getting spillover into the veterinary space, particularly because a lot of these vaccines do prevent diseases that are potentially contagious to humans. The disease most worrying for human health is rabies. Ryan Wallace, head of the rabies team at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, explains the infection. It's usually almost always transmitted uh, from saliva of an infected animal. The virus gets into the body through a bite wound. It travels slowly up the nerves to the brain, and then it starts replicating rapidly. That's when an animal or a human starts showing signs. It's almost impossible to come back after that. The virus, its goal is to make you act abnormal so it can spread to the next animal. Wallace says 99.9% of humans and animals that get rabies to the brain will die. A hundred years ago, rabies was considered one of the most important public health problems in the U.S. Now, it's largely under control. We have shifted as a country from vaccinating dogs at a high rate to get rid of the virus to now vaccinating our pets at a high rate to keep the, keep the wildlife versions of this virus from getting into our pets and people. About 5,000 rabid animals get reported each year, mostly bats, raccoons, skunks, and other wildlife. Cindy Marabito from the Pitbull Rescue says she's never seen a rabid animal. You know, I'm not careless, but I also really don't overly concern myself with 
being fearful of things that rarely, rarely, rarely happen. But she says she has seen a dog act strangely after getting a rabies shot. Serious side effects from the rabies vaccine are very, very rare, but seeing that made her wary. Researchers say that while half of dog owners are skeptical of the rabies vaccine, most are still giving it to their pets. The vaccination rate is around 80%, about the same as it was 10 years ago. Still, health officials say the margin is slim. If that 80% rate drops to below 70%, pockets of the country could start seeing more deadly rabies in people and pets. Ping Huang, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this evening in business news, starting in January, this new $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles can be applied up front at the dealership. We'll look at how it could impact EV sales. That's on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. An update on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about two-tenths of a percent. S&P rose four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained just over seven-tenths of a percent. A Franklin-based packaging company is now part of a multinational firm. Cold Chain Technologies has been purchased by Exultainer, a company with headquarters in Brazil and Spain. The Worcester Business Journal reports the amount paid for the company was not made public. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage now through October 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Tonight, just the chance of showers before midnight, a fair share of clouds around through the night, falling to about 50. Clouds should find their way out of here by tomorrow, leaving sunshine for the day. Highs close to 70, then sunny but cooler on Friday. This is WBUR at 621. WBUR supporters include New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Open house October 19th, neiacademy.org and Elliott Community Human Services, working to end the homelessness crisis by providing evidence-based care. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. Dollar General, with its big yellow sign, has 19,000 stores nationwide, more than any other retailer. 80% of those are in small towns. And now Dollar General is pairing up with a mobile clinic operator for an experiment to bring health care to rural residents. Reporter Sarah Jane Tribble traveled to Tennessee and discovered that winning patients isn't as simple as just setting up shop in a parking lot. The mobile clinic looks like a cross between a small RV and a food truck. One side is covered with a bright blue and yellow poster, vaccinations, physicals, prescriptions. When registered nurse Kimberly French arrives for her shift, 
She snaps a cord on an exam chair back into place. We talk over the hum of the air conditioning. A lot of it's already set up. Um, I come in and, and um, just make sure everything, everything that's lost its way on the trip is back where it goes. The van has been trying out different Dollar General locations since late last year and trying to win people over. French uses an iPad to connect patients with a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. She can also do labs, give shots, and just be with the patient. That is, when there are patients. We don't have any appointments so far today, but that could change. <laughs> last night, we didn't have any appointments, and three or four people showed up all at one time. So The clinic is owned and operated by mobile health provider DocGo, as in doctor on the go. The company is based in New York. Business boomed for DocGo during the COVID-19 pandemic. But in recent weeks, the company has faced scrutiny for how they are delivering care in New York and their use of public funds there. Meanwhile, here in Tennessee, with its partner Dollar General, the company is trying to figure out health care in rural America. Bubba Murphy was walking into a Dollar General when I stopped him to ask about the mobile clinic. Oh, I like it because we don't have to go to town and fight all that traffic. Dollar General says its partnership with DocGo complements the retailer's effort to increase access to healthy products like vitamins and supplements, particularly in rural America. The whole idea, they said, is to test and learn. 72-year-old Lulu West moved to Tennessee years ago and already has a primary care doctor she trusts. When you say mobile clinic outside of Dollar General, it just kind of has a connotation that you may not really be comfortable with. You know what I mean? A little doctor by the grocery store? You know, I don't know. Outside another Dollar General location not far away, I met business owner Nicole Clemmer. She's not impressed. It's just a... Uh, um another way for them to make money because I'm thinking what the hell do they have to do with health but it could be beneficial now if it was free then yes did I be like off or if it was free it's not free DocGo and Dollar General are both for-profit companies DocGo takes private and public insurance and there's a self-pay option too though the company declined to provide exactly what that cost is Tom Campanilla is a longtime healthcare executive and understands the business of running mobile clinics. Having a healthcare van sitting outside a Dollar General could mean more traffic for the store and help people. They have a tremendous opportunity given their existing footprint to have a major impact on health there. There is rural America. Health industry watchers say providing care at thousands of Dollar General locations could be a game changer for areas that don't have enough doctors. Primary care physician Carlo Pike is always busy. He's been around for decades in northern Tennessee. He says developing a relationship takes time and ongoing attention. If I can do this relationship right, maybe we can keep you from getting a sugar of 500 or from, you know, Grandpa climbing up a ladder and trying to fix something he has no business with and falling off and breaking his leg. To introduce the mobile clinic, the DocGo van goes to community gatherings and gives out swag. But it didn't work in Cumberland Furnace, the most rural location they tried. Lottie Stokes is president of the community center there. They have called and asked for it to come down here, and I would never answer them back. Stokes sees no need for the mobile clinic. She'd rather just call the local EMTs and fire department. Yeah, I know them guys. I know they're, they're, they're legit. It's, you're looking at somebody that I don't know that well that's calling me to ask for permission to come down here and set up for our events that I don't know when I have somebody that's local that I know. Stokes may not think there's a need for the clinic, but after we stopped talking, her father-in-law, Bobby Stokes, quietly called me over. 
He's nearly 80 and said he and his wife went to the mobile van one night. She couldn't breathe. They pulled into the parking lot and climbed on. We wasn't in there five minutes. They'd done the blood pressure test and the, what they need to do and put her in the car and get her to the hospital, to the emergency room. I asked if Doc Go wanted payment. Did he give them money? I don't guess they did because I didn't give them none. What about your insurance card? Didn't even give them that. Nothing at all? Nothing. They were more concerned with her than they were with, I guess, with getting the money. Stokes says his wife would not have made it through the night. They told me to get there. And I took them at the word. My car runs fast. <laughs> he and his wife got the care they needed. The question remains, though, of whether this particular marriage of health care and retail could help enough patients in rural America. I'm Sarah Jane Tribble in Tennessee. This story was produced in collaboration with KFF Health News. Birkenstock has clogged its way to becoming a publicly traded company valued at about $8 billion. It kicked up quite the stir on Wall Street, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. Stock traders don't really get to do this, but today... Everyone here on the floor, myself included, is wearing Birkenstocks. That's Trinity Chavez, an anchor for the live feed from the New York Stock Exchange. Were there executives in suits wearing Birkenstocks? Yes, there were. Open toes... Yes, indeed. Burks over socks also present. As the CEO rang the opening bell, his entourage waved shoes in the air. One man clapped his hands with one hand wearing a sandal. Birkenstock is nearly 250 years old, older even than the Stock Exchange, run by a German family for seven generations. Their innovation was the anatomically shaped insole made of cork and latex. It's not high fashion, but it persists, from hippies to hipsters to even Barbie in this year's blockbuster. The first one, the high heel. No, we'll do a redo. CEO Oliver Reicher told CNBC it's all about word of mouth. Just go into your private environment and ask, do you have a pair of Birkenstock? Yeah, yes. How many pairs? 10 pairs, 12 pairs, you I know? Too. Yeah, you're, you're, you're a rookie. You know? Unlike the CNBC reporter, an average American fan apparently owns 3.6 pairs of Birkenstocks. In its filing to go public, the company described itself as, quote, the oldest startup on earth serving a primal need of all human beings. What does it sell? Not shoes, but quote, the experience of walking as intended by nature. Birkenstock is always the, the second best option. Right after walking barefoot on soft ground. Reichert has run the company for a decade since the Birkenstock family stepped back, later selling the majority stake. Why is he taking the company public now? Maybe because the markets are ready, or maybe, as he wrote to investors, quote, everything has to change so that everything stays the way it is. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. And a note, despite the enthusiasm, Birkenstock shares finish the first day down more than 12%. This is NPR News. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered here at 90.9 WBUR. Business news with Marketplace is coming up next. Clouds should thicken through the overnight hours, light rain possible. Tomorrow should be sunny and dry and pretty nice, close to 70 degrees. Friday, sunny again, but a good deal cooler. Boston Bruins open up their regular season tonight, their 100th. 
They take on the Chicago Blackhawks at the Garden. The puck drops at 7.30. Celtics also play tonight in a preseason game. They take on the 76ers in Philadelphia. Tip-off is set for 7 o'clock. This is 90.9 WBUR, 63 degrees in the Boston area at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today.